This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. Thank you for continuing to send in your questions and suggestions for future podcasts. Claire and I will be looking at these during our annual August Talking Flutes podcast recess. Well, that's holiday really. And we'll aim to include as many of these when we return. This week, I'm joined by the sub-principal flute and piccolo of the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra. This lovely lady and gorgeous flute player divides her time between South Africa and United Kingdom. You know, it's almost as though we're just down the road. And holds a Master of Art with merit from the Royal Academy of Music in London, where she studied with the wonderful Paul Edmund Davis. She's not only a wonderful flute player, but she's a fabulous piccolo player to boot. And it is only fitting when, during the lockdown period, I seem to scare not only the neighbours, but also the magpies in the garden, with my vain attempts at piccolo practice. So, this week, I welcome on to Talking Flutes Extra, the ever-smiling Sally Minter. This is London Calling, London Calling. Come in, Sally. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And how are you? Because you're in Manchester at the moment, aren't you? I'm in Manchester and I'm doing very well. It's just a bit miserably grey. Yeah, now, bearing in mind you sort of traded South Africa for is it the UK for a year? Um, for as long as things go here. Oh, right. <laughs> being in lockdown in Manchester, how do you think that would have been different to being locked down in Cape Town? Hmm. Well, I managed to just narrowly avoid getting stuck between countries. I was actually only supposed to move to the UK in April. And then it looked like lockdown was imminent, so I hopped on a plane and got here just the day before. So I could have been very well in South Africa during lockdown. I think it would have been much the same, except I would have missed being with my partner. So at least we're here in lockdown together rather than on different continents. Yeah, and what's your partner do? He is a lawyer and an oboist. So he is. Um, he also studied music. We actually studied music together in Cape Town in a different lifetime and um, now he's a full-time lawyer oh and he's based over in manchester yes do you know sometimes these clever people (laughs) not only not only they're good at intellectual things but their creative side so their two brains aren't supposed to work as good as each other (laughs) now there are some lucky ones (laughs) so you are just unlocking now yes and getting used to going out and yeah the big wide world outside making music with other people again what an absolute joy yeah i I mean are you able to do that i know you can pop along and see stephen clark who's just down the road or he can come to you but are are there other musicians now that you can hook up with um not really i because obviously we are supposed to keep the circles small um so stephen and i have played some duets socially distance in his living room well, can i just say socially distancing is two meters i think you're about six meters apart weren't you <laughs> <laughs> that was taking social distancing to the nth degree sally well we didn't want to offend anyone in social media and get 
you know, the people who tell you off for standing too close. So we <laughs> thought better safe than sorry. Oh, it sounded it sounded beautiful anyway. Yeah, it was a real treat to be able to make music with him and to meet him because obviously we'd met on social media, but to meet in real life is a treat. Yeah, fellow flute players, always nice to meet members of the family, the flute family. Yeah. yeah. So Sally, where did all this start? Where did this flute malarkey start back home? And when? And why? Um, I was somewhat of a reluctant flautist at first. Um, I had played piano and recorder with the same teacher for many years, who I absolutely adored. And when I was about 13, she sort of started suggesting that I learn the flute. And because she didn't teach the flute, I didn't want to do it. Um, Because I only ever wanted to learn with her. And she kept pushing and pushing. And eventually, I thought, fine, I'll try out this flute thing. And I was very lucky with really passionate teachers who played very beautifully and it stuck. So what really got you to start with? Was it the sound of the flute or what really drew you in? Because it's not really an easy instrument to begin with and it's certainly a very difficult instrument to actually master, if you ever can master it. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a difficult instrument to start and I think I was lucky having done recorder and piano first that at least I knew how to read music so I didn't have that hurdle to overcome as well as trying to hold a very awkward asymmetrical instrument. I just, I sort of bumbled along with all three instruments for a while. And then towards the end of high school, I saw a CD in a CD store when we still had those. (laughs) Of um, And there was a woman on the cover with a flute and I'd never seen a female flute player on a CD before because we had a very limited what we CDs that we could buy over there. So I bought it and I absolutely just completely fell in love with her sound. I thought, yeah, this is it. This is, I want to be able to make a sound like that. And, you know, the search to make a sound like that continues, but I, it just completely enchanted me. Do you remember who it was? It's Magali Mosnier. She's a French flute player. She plays in the Radio France Orchestra. It was the sound that drew you in. Yeah. And her recording of the 4A Fantasy, which has now become this piece that no one wants to play because it's the audition piece. (laughs) Um, But I still love it because it made me fall in love with the flute. Isn't that interesting how it's the sound that makes you fall in love with this instrument? With me, it was was very different. It was, I mean, I won't bore you with the story, but... (laughs) I came downstairs one well, one morning and my mum was very old-fashioned English. You know, she could chop one finger off. Hey, it doesn't matter, darling, I've got another three. <laughs> and she was in tears. And on the radio, I could hear this sound. And it was Jimmy Galway playing Danny Boy. And I thought, well, if that's the power can make my mum cry, then I want some of that. But it was the sound of the flute and just the depth of sound. And, you know, I've been playing good grief. 40 uh, 40 odd years uh won't go any further than that sally and um (laughs) even now the sound is is one of those things that takes you on a journey spits you out occasionally and then when you come (laughs) back with it it's very different yeah i think people have a very love-hate relationship with their flute sound because it's the thing that enchants you and makes you want to pursue it and then it's the thing that you one struggles with always because you you never well, I haven't yet arrived at a final point where I think, yes, this is my sound. I'm, I'm happy now. <laughs> but when you listen back to the orchestra and you're playing, okay, it's very different. I, I do appreciate that than playing a solo. Do you ever think, oh, that sounded nice? Or are you one of these that are self-critical? 
I am extremely self-critical. I always have been. I think most musicians are. Um, so the moments where you do listen to yourself and think, actually, yeah, I'm happy with that, are very special. And to be written down and reread many times when we go through spirals of self-doubt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is a that is par for the course for any normal, and I could use normal musician, whether you're world-class, <laughs> whether you are just on this journey, self-doubt as a musician is mm. probably the number one problem. Yeah, I think teaching has been a very good antidote for that because you become so attached to your students and you, you believe in them and you help them develop. And the seeing them grow and develop and hearing their sound develop is such a precious thing to witness that I think it makes one more forgiving of one's own struggles in developmental stages. Yeah, how do you keep that encouragement going with your with the younger students, you know, those that are perhaps going th going through the, the sort of adolescence change. And there's a lot of going on, whether it's girl or boy, isn't there? And mm. how do you keep that focus, that motivation, that love of the instrument when there's so much else sort of going on? I think it's very important to be as much yourself as possible and as human as possible and to remember what it was like going through that stage and to relay that to them, you know, that you weren't always the player that you are now, that you also had awkward stages and not just in your playing, but also in your life. And I think we're sort of, there was an old fashioned sort of teacher persona that, <laughs> that you have when you think, you know, in movies and things where you have this very stern teacher who's sort of inhuman and doesn't have a personality and never struggled with anything. And I, I can't, be that person I just have to be myself and I think students relate to you when they know that you also struggled and needed to learn things and couldn't play that scale or didn't practice enough or you know we weren't always flute players we were students as well did you always want to be a flute player <laughs> I don't know that I always wanted to be a flute player I think when I went to university <clears throat> and started focusing on the flute that's when the drive really started to be a flute player rather than another instrument or another art form. <clears throat> I always knew I wanted to do music or be involved in music and the arts. I just wasn't quite sure what form it would take. So it's one thing playing the flute and it's another thing playing that evil little thing, <laughs> that twig. And But you, you have this weird love for the instrument, don't you? I do. I have developed a weird love for the instrument. It's piccolo, by the way, for our audience. <laughs> I apologise. I, I did call it the evil twig on Twitter last week and actually got slapped over the wrist by a couple of people. Oh, yeah, did you? you I have a colleague it. who refers to it as firewood. So there is that as well. <laughs> I bet your colleague isn't a flute player, is he? No, he's not. He's a singer. So <laughs> I'd imagine most brass players, that's definitely firewood. <laughs> or barbecue. Barbie, Barbie, Barbie fuel. Uh, it does cross my mind every now and then, I'm not going to lie. It's not a permanent love relationship. <laughs> so what brought you in to falling in love with the piccolo, of all things? <laughs> it's a relatively recent thing in my life. I think when I got the orchestral job in the Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra, um, there are only two full-time flute players, so my job is 50-50. I choose if I want to do piccolo or flute. Um and the repertoire for piccolo in the orchestra, especially things like Kofiev and Shostakovich, it's so much fun to play on piccolo. There's so much personality 
And I'm quite a small, relatively shy person. And I think the personality of the piccolo and its cheekiness really allowed me to explore a different side of my musicianship. I have yet to meet you, Sally, but I feel as though I know you already because you do put your iPhone on your music stand during rehearsals sometimes. (laughs) And we can tell you're a cheeky player. (laughs) Because your eyes and your smile and you look over to your fellow members with that glint when you've just played something. Yeah, I, my principal flute, Gabriela von Durkheim, is a fantastic player, and I, we do have a really great playing relationship, and we enjoy the same kind of thing. So I never want to lose that joy of playing and the, the mischief of it. So it's how, part of the fun. How can you demystify the piccolo to people like myself and to other flute players that are out there that find it painful? Not, not, think... not as in pain, sorry, not audibly painful, but as soon as you go above sort of... C in the second octave, you start going into the realms of um, yeah, squeaky bum territory. When you, I think only dogs can hear that pitch anyway, so <laughs> it's good to remember when you're practicing, no one can hear it. <laughs> now, how do you stop yourself or how do you prevent yourself from sort of squeezing because you think you're going up really, really high and mm-hmm. we, we forget everything we learnt with the flute? Well, I think the... The problem is that when most people start learning that range of the piccolo, it's been so long since we learned the high register of the flute. And if you think back to when you were, I don't know, how old most people are when they start learning the high register of the flute and how painful that is. And you have to you have to soldier on, you know, you have to push through that awkward stage, get your earplugs out and just get more familiar with that register. Because if we never do it, it's never going to get better. You've got it exactly right. Familiarity. I think it's also important to remember that the best composers, orchestrally anyway, for the instrument, if you think of Prokofiev and Shostakovich, there's a lot of very high piccolo playing in there it. There is. And they knew exactly what they were doing. They wouldn't have written it if they wanted it to sound tiny and pretty and pianissimo and, and to just be in the background. They did it for an effect. So I think if you think of the timbre of it rather than, oh, my God, this is dreadful... <laughs> It's there to be played. It's there to have fun with. So, But when you hear a truly good piccolo player, you it stands out. It really, really stands out to me because the width and the depth of the sound, they're so wide and it's not sort of focused inwards. It's almost as though you've got the same relaxation when you're playing the instrument as you do when you're playing the flute. I think there is a relaxation element, which I think is partially more psychological than Ah. physical Um, because you know when you're afraid of something you tense up and your whole body goes into that sort of shock stiff muscled approach which is the (laughs) worst thing you could possibly do to play the piccolo because it's just going to be shrill and painful Um, so you have to learn to force yourself and your body to relax the same way that you do when you're nervous and you play the flute and you have to psychologically prepare yourself for that so do you think it's because people just are generally scared of it or scared of trying to become good on it because they're trying to concentrate all the time on their flute and ignore the piccolo? I think there's a lot of that for sure. Um, and I partially I think at sort of you know youth orchestra stage or university stage, even at conservatoire level, I think the because we're also obsessed with becoming flute players, 
and there's this endless drive for it that being put on piccolo and projects almost seems like you've been relegated somehow, like you're yeah. on the bench. Yes. So you feel defeated somehow, whereas, you know, it's 50% of an orchestral job. So it's firstly a privilege to be sitting there at all. And if it were presented as more, a, well, if you're a flautist in your career, you're almost definitely going to have to do this. So the better you are at it, the more employable you are. Um, so I think it's also a little bit of getting over that hurdle of, well, if I'm practicing piccolo, does that mean I've given up on being a flute player or I'm not a good enough flute player? And it's like, no, well, you're practicing the piccolo because you love music and you want to be a musician. And this is part of it. And it's also wonderful that little tiny thing can be heard above everything else in such a huge orchestra. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have that moment. I must admit, I'm quite. I have a very talkative family, and I'm the quiet one. So I think the piccolo is my little my voice. <laughs> I finally got my own back. I can be heard above the orchestra. Uh, Sally, what brought you over to the Royal Academy of Music to study when you were South African born and bred? I'm very much a sort of what next person. I, I like, I'm very goal orientated and then I do the thing and then I want to know what the next thing is. And I wasn't quite sure during my undergrad what that was going to be. And then I came to London on holiday and I went to a concert of the LSO just by chance. I happened to be playing in St. Paul's Cathedral and I was walking past and I thought, Ooh, oh, let's good go God. to that. And it was just the most incredible sound I'd ever heard. I'd never heard an orchestra like that. I'd never heard music like that. And I thought, hmm. Yeah, okay, I want to be able to do this. And London was the place to do it, so I came over and auditioned. And, and was was Paul the principal in that concert that you watched? Um, no, he wasn't. At that stage, it was Gareth Davies, I think, oh, saying okay, that night. Yeah. Mm. And you studied with Paul? I did. Paul Edmund Davies, yeah. I studied with Paul Edmund Davies um, for food. I had Pat Morris for Piccolo, so oh, crikey. couldn't have asked for a better team. And... How do you think you went back to South? You returned after your three years. What the, do you think the difference is you were as an individual and as a musician? I think I had a much greater grasp of what I wanted to do musically. I think your eyes are opened when you live in a city like London and you have a teacher like Paul who's had a career like that. I think there's a hunger there that you, you want to have those things and make those things happen for yourself. It, it was challenging in a way because conservatoire training is very orchestral based mm. um, for flute players anyway. And in a musical environment like South Africa, there you know there are two full time orchestras in the whole country, so it's not a lot of orchestral work going around. So I needed to learn to be a lot more versatile when I got back. You you must have done because congratulations on getting the job because as you say, there's only two full time orchestras and there's some very good flute players in South Africa. Thank you. I just. Um, <laughs> It was an amazing thing to get that job, and but also after five years of freelancing and everything that entailed, and which was also amazing. I, I feel very grateful to have done all the things that I've done in this time. Yeah, so and it's always good to see more women flute players in orchestras because there was a time not so long ago where you only ever saw men. Yeah, particularly in Europe, in South Africa, orchestrally, I think it is pretty mixed. Um, I found it more difficult when I, I play in a flute and piano duo called Avanti and we went about recording our own album and promoting that ourselves and navigating that world of copyright and recording institutions and design and all of that kind of thing was it 
it was difficult to make ourselves be taken seriously as young women. But you managed to do it. And as you say, you sound like you, you have itchy feet all the time. I do have itchy feet and I do seem to love a challenge. I think being a musician is one of the most creative career paths you can have, not just in that music is creative, but in terms of you have to keep reinventing yourself and reinventing what you're going to do because there are only so many full-time jobs. So do you know Sally Minter, the musician? Do you know who you are or you are still morphing? Are you still in this cocoon trying to sort of work out who you really are? Because a lot of musicians don't know who they are and they copy, don't they? Hmm. I think I'm still in the cocoon working it out, but I think that's a lifelong thing. I sort of hope it is a lifelong thing. I don't really want to arrive at one point and think, okay, I'm, I'm done, this is it. Because the joy is in the creating and the growing and figuring out what's next, which is scary, but also very exciting. So can we see you over here? Uh, would there be orchestral positions coming up in the future that you would like to work, work at? I mean, that would be amazing. I'd also, I'd love to get back into playing more chamber music. I love ah. playing in my flute and piano duo and I'd love to branch out. Well, we'd love to branch that out and see what comes next. And I love teaching as well. So I'm very, very keen to get going here and see what comes. Well, from what I can see, you're very smiley and you, you seem quite laid back as well. But that's quite a South African thing, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose. I think what you see on the surface is masked the sort of constant performance anxiety that's hidden inside. <laughs> what do you do to cope with that when it pings up, Sally? Um, I do a lot of mental preparation for performance of visualising what it's going to feel like, who's going to be there, as much as I can visualise as possible so that I've kind of done it before it's actually happened. Yeah, so you actually visualise yourself on the stage, looking at the audience and seeing people there that you would recognise? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the physical feeling of feeling nervous to try and manifest that feeling when I'm practising so that when it happens in performance, you know, when you get a bit shaky or you're a bit short of breath, that that is not as much of a shock. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Creative visualisation. Rather than trying to bat it away, as some people try and do, actually taking it head on as part of your preparation for the performance. Mm. I mean, there's a certain amount of performance anxiety and adrenaline that makes a concert yeah. exciting. But when it becomes debilitating, I think it's important to learn different methods. I still haven't quite aced it. I do sometimes still get very nervous, particularly in the orchestra. I played principal flute for four months while my principal was on leave. And I've never felt that nervous in my life, <laughs> being so much in the firing line. But nervous and anxiety do different things. So, as you say, nerves are actually really good because it heightens the awareness, doesn't it? Mm. But again, becoming a, a teacher and, and helping my students deal with their performance anxiety has been very good for me to learn different ways to deal with mine. Yeah, because obviously students, unless they're super super confident which normally masks something else um they are really really prone to it during live performance or even exams aren't they yeah they are it's it's been a very interesting comparison i've found in my head that i because i did ballet my whole life and never felt nervous for ballet concerts but for some reason always felt nervous for music concerts really because i thought ballet was 
just as dog eat dog as the music world. And oh, I mean, look, I'm not a professional dancer, and I would never be good enough to be one. So there is that. But I think it's also that in your in a ballet class, it's a performance right from the first minute you get into the studio to the second you leave. So oh. you know, the, the whole thing is even though it's exercises and the same way you would go through a normal lesson, performance is always the main aspect, how you carry yourself, how you present yourself, and it, um, you the care that you take about it. And we're not like that when we practice. But you can't miss yourself in a ballet class because you're surrounded by mirrors, aren't you? Yeah, constantly <laughs> faced with yourself. <laughs> Do you imagine how awful that would be if you just practice in front of a mirror all the time? <laughs> your your flute play. <laughs> No, we don't need to look at our embouchures and how weirdly distorted our faces become. Yeah, well, we won't go down that route because that is certainly, that's a, that is a minefield when you look at embouchures and uh, uh-huh. angles of holding flutes. Sally, I noticed on social media, you've, do, you've got a wonderful, wonderful piccolo project coming up on the 2nd of August, Sunday the 2nd of August, and everybody is invited. I'm very excited. It's called a piccolo makeover in that I'm trying to get people to get their piccolos out of the dusty boxes they've been sitting in during lockdown (laughs) and to revamp the way that they practice it and the way that they think about it to introduce it as an independent instrument not as an extension of the flute and to find our way around trying to tame the beast tame the beast yeah little tiny thing it's like dogs isn't it you normally (laughs) find the little tiny dogs scare the big dogs the little tiny dogs are overconfident, aren't they? <laughs> and unpredictable. Oh, yeah, just like the piccolo playing. Yeah. So this really is for those, anybody that needs guidance on piccolo practicing, who want to revamp their piccolo playing, and really it's reacquainting yourself with the instrument. And it's on Sunday the 2nd of August at 4pm UK time. That is, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And it's just an hour and a half, so till 5.30, so people can still have their Sunday evenings to themselves. I think they need to get permission from the uh, the rest of the family that um, they are going to be squeaking away at certain times. <laughs> yeah, hand out generous wads of cotton wool for ears. No, I think this is brilliant because there's been so many flute classes uh, held via Zoom, and I've yet to find this piccolo class that is going to be interactive really for all standards, but using someone of your standing and your experience to sort of coax out and to unlock the art of piccolo playing, whatever standard you are. Yeah, that's the idea. Um, Born out of the fact that I won this orchestral job and then realised that at least 50% of my time was going to be spent playing an instrument I'd never really spent enough time on and thinking, oh, how am I going to figure this out? So... It's kind of my journey of working out the best way to practice with minimal time because, let's face it, none of us have hours and hours to spend on the piccolo. So what best can we do to figure it out in the smallest amount of time? Better than to have the a reboot. Well, for many, a rebooting class. And for some, such as me, it will be nervously getting the lump of wood out and saying, well, here we go then. <laughs> <laughs> let's see what. So, yeah, you're, ho- you're hosting it via Zoom, aren't you? Yes. And places are limited. How many places do you have? Um, 20 is the maximum, and we're about halfway booked at the Ooh. moment. So, Well, well as, as this podcast, we're pre-recording it a couple of days beforehand, but this podcast is going out on the 13th of July. And how will people register, Sally? Um, people can register via my website, which is www.sallymintoflute.com. 
And there's a page there called Piccolo Makeover, and you can just click book now and it will do it all for you. I really couldn't recommend this highly enough. Just for those that are feeling a little insecure about their piccolo playing. And uh, I have many, many friends and colleagues in the US that come up, fall under that category, Sally. (laughs) Well, I promise it will be done with a great sense of humour. That's my teaching philosophy. We laugh at ourselves and we laugh at each other and we can get through anything. (laughs) Do you know, that is a a very positive uh, note, is that... We shouldn't really take ourselves seriously, should we? Obviously, we, are, we have a pro- professional positions, we have our professional lives, and we try and do everything to our best ability. But ultimately, as individuals, we shouldn't really take ourselves too seriously. No, well, it takes the joy out of music making, I think. Yeah, the joy, the passion. Yeah, and the creativity and the spontaneity. You know, we do, at the end of the day, we say, I play the flute. We don't say, I do the flute, or I... You know, I job the flute. We we play. It's supposed to be playful, not an endless sad task we're tasked with. So first thing in the morning, imagine it's, uh, have you played your flute this morning yet? A little bit, yes. Ah, okay. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, and you pick the flute up and you've got lips like rubber tyres. What do you do? Mm-hmm. I'm a creature of habit, I'm afraid. I, I follow the same sort of warm-up pattern every day. So um, even though you may know that your lips aren't responding straight away, you have this belief that they'll just unlock gradually. I have hope. <laughs> <laughs> we have to have hope. Does it ever happen when it doesn't? And you just oh, think yeah. it's a real dog and it day. It sounds dreadful and then you want to throw your flute in the bin and think, why have I done this? It's all a mistake. How could I possibly have ever been a flautist? So what do you do? Do you put it away and think, I'm going to come back later? Or do you just laugh and... It depends how despondent I've become during the session. Sometimes I, sometimes you do need to put it away and come back to it later. Sometimes I find it really helps to make music with someone else. So I'm lucky in that my partner is an oboist. So we can play duets and stuff together. And then you forget about your sound really because you're sight reading and that's more stressful. I'm being, um, I'm being hypercritical. Do you sometimes think you sound, you're sounding bad, worse than you actually are? I think so, yes. I think that's the case for most of us. Especially when, you know, when one posts things on Instagram, by the time it's actually posted, you've listened to it 75 times and you think, no one's ever going to want to listen to me play again. <laughs> oh, let's, let's speak about Instagram for a second, because you were banned. You, had, you put one of your own pieces up and were banned, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> I was very offended by that. I was flattered and offended. It took you ages, didn't it, to get, the, um, to get use of it, your own performance. Yeah, it's quite frustrating because they just eventually clear it and then it's posted at some random time of day or night, whereas, you know, most of us are quite thoughtful about when we post things to get the most yeah. um, interaction. And you, you never hear back from them, do you? No, just one day it pops up. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And as I think I told you, the Josh Johnson in New York, was uh, he had a similar post taken down because they said it was copyright to Emmanuel Pahoud. And yeah, that he, happened to me on Facebook. I've never been so proud. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> Somebody, the, the algorithm thinks you're Pahoud. You know, I would love that. I would, I, would die, I would die a happy flute player. Yeah, we could just call it a day once that's happened. <laughs> You're starting a new hashtag, really, shouldn't you? Banned by <laughs> by being accused of of playing like Pahud. <laughs> I mean, it is a bit frustrating though sometimes because we're all just small independent musicians trying to 
get out of the little scrap of the music industry. So when a big company like that kind of takes over, it is a bit frustrating. Yes, it is. But I suppose that is the nature of social media. And it's um, you take it for what it is. Don't take it too seriously. And then No, is, again, we have to keep a good sense of humour about it all. You do, because occasionally there'll be comments that come along that are unkind and you just put the trolls down to being either insecure of their own playing or just want to be out there to cause a nuisance. So it's a case of just, again, don't believe everything that you read or see on social media. No, it is a bit disheartening when you post something and you think, oh, there's a wrong note in bar 49, but I'm sure no one will notice. And then someone will comment, you paid a wrong note in bar 49. (laughs) Yes, yes, I know. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And do you know, it's, you know, sometimes you want people to get a life. It's like, (laughs) it's like being called a flute player, flautist, flutist, fluterer musician i'm, I'm sticking with flautist i know you're sticking with flautist because there's this line that goes from london all the way down to south africa and they yeah they all call themselves flautist but it's really passionate for some people and really it doesn't matter what you call yourself <laughs> I, I know you're you're staying with what you are and i respect that uh <laughs> but um what does your partner call himself an oboist an oboy i think he calls himself a lawyer most of the time <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that says it all, really? So, what, what's the immediate future holding for you, Sally? Um, slightly unsure, to be honest. I, mean, I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. Do you um, like that? For someone that is sort of itching to get new projects done and to have this pathway opening up, does it worry you, or does it, or does it excite you that the path isn't there? Uh, the lockdown situation worries me, and that you know, I love the excitement of what's next and what can I do in the future? But that's given that there is the freedom to do so. Um, So when that freedom is taken away, it becomes a bit more difficult to be hopeful, I think, because there's, there's sort of an no ending date to this scenario, but I I think it's exciting in that it's forcing us to reinvent ourselves and what we do and how we do it. Um, but I can't wait to get back to teaching in person and making music with other people. Because the creative arts has been decimated. I, mean, I know there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world, perhaps millions that are that will view the COVID-19 as a real dreadful experience, both personally through loss and or knowing people that have died, but also for people that are losing their jobs around the world. But the one area, certainly our government have struggled with, and re- I don't imagine I would... I wouldn't be going out on a limb by saying they've ignored until we've heard the news. Mm-hmm. To, we've heard the news today, is the creative arts, and that we are a country that has built our lives on the creative arts with theatre, drama, and music, and social events. You know, orchestras coming together, and in Germany they managed to get the orchestras together in social distancing, and they're beginning to do concerts again. But it just seems to me the UK, we, we're languishing behind. Mm, and it's the same in South Africa as well. And I, I think it come, it stems from, I think, there being little understanding within government of how orchestras and chamber groups and arts organisations actually function. Yes. Because they only see the final product. They don't see the day-to-day work that goes into it. So I think there's a, a lack of understanding there. A lack of representation. And on a human level, life without music, really, I would challenge anybody that's listening to this to, during their lockdown period, 
to tell us or to email me and say, I, I didn't listen to any music. Music seems mm. to be the foundation of everything we do. It draws us, it tells a story, can make us cry. Films without music very rarely affect you emotionally. Yeah. Because it's that music. And, you know, it frustrates me that the people that are really, really struggling at the moment are musicians because there is no, there's no end in sight. Mm. And, um, and so much of the joy we get from playing is from playing with other people. Yes. You know, I can practice in my room alone as much as I like, but it's not, that's not the thing. It's not, there's no connection there. There's no humanity. It's just going through the motions. And the audience are some, it, it's that area where you're focusing your storytelling in either in a group, a chamber group, or with another person, or with an orchestra, onto these individuals that are sat there waiting to be moved by your music. And to be... It's one thing doing a rehearsal with a, an orchestra, isn't it? But then when you have that audience there, there's that vibe, isn't there? Yeah, there's a different energy. Because you're sharing something without saying anything at all. And that's the thing with music, and you share. You are sharing mm. between you and a, an individual in your group or you in the audience or even on the radio when it goes out on the radio waves you are affecting people around the world mm. so, so it's hard when that's been taken away it is and we can do it over you know zoom and youtube and all sorts of things but it's not the same thing and it will never be the same thing i get very scared when people say this is the new normal because i don't want to inhabit a musical world where where we can't perform yeah, and I haven't yet heard a flute sounding like a live flute on Zoom. I mean, they're very good now, but I haven't heard one that is really uh, as if I was standing in the same room. So there must be some nuances you miss out when you're teaching. Yeah, completely. And you miss out on the human energy of it. There's, I think so much is communicated through the actual person and their energy while they perform and you don't get that over a screen no do you find some of the students find it harder to play in front of the computer rather than in front of a person yes i think so i think there's a sort of there's well i mean there's an obvious barrier between you and there's a i think that takes away from the vulnerability that you have in a lesson both from teacher and student side there's a a sharing there that you don't really get over a screen they've been very diligent and well prepared my okay. students are i praise them for their diligence during this time so what you, what's your plans for the rest of the day milady i've got some practicing to do it's uh, the end of the week say that. i knew you'd say that i uh, yeah, i'm a bit of a nerd on that front i'm afraid what do you have do you have a set set amount each day um most of the time, and then sometimes I'll get a bit bored or frustrated and want to do something different. But um, I found the Etude of the Week group on Facebook really helpful to keep going. Mm -hmm. So play some etudes, choose some new repertoire to learn, do some preparation for the piccolo workshop, um, cook some food. That's been my lockdown saviour is just cooking up a storm. Yeah, what do you cook? I'm, I love my rugby, as do all South Africans, I would add. <laughs> And when South Africa come to Twickenham and the, um, have you, do you like your rugby? I'm not a huge rugby fan, I must admit. I'm not a very good South African on that front. Ah, but when South African come to Twickenham, there's always, as you walk towards Twickenham, there's all these sort of um, booths, sort of uh, walk-in tents outside people's houses. And the South African biltong and there's all this South African food there and it's wonderful. But it's just too oh. much, it's too much meat 
Yeah, South Africans generally are big meat eaters. Well, not only big, they're big human beings as well. They are massive. Yeah, and I, well, not medium. <laughs> I seem to have not got the growing gene. But, um, yeah, South Africans do love their food and meat. And I can't say barbecue. I'm always going to say braai. That's my yeah. South Africanism that will stick. So how have you coped without your braai over here? Um, not well. <laughs> We can't because my partner's also South African, so we're very excited to move to a place that has a garden and then we can do the braai thing. Yeah, because that is, it's, it's virtually, uh, it's way of life, isn't it? It's like the Australians, it's, it's their way of life as well. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a social thing, you know, you get together over the braai and you know, share a meal and share a drink. And... Wine or but beer? I'm wine. Uh, yeah. Got you. So everybody, <laughs> Sally Minter's Piccolo Makeover Session on sunday the 2nd of august at 4 p.m get onto a website there'll be a link underneath this podcast uh, description and sign up because it's very rarely you get the opportunity to get the piccolo out and to be taught by a pro sally thank you for coming on this morning well thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure oh no it's always a pleasure and we will meet up i'm sure before you go back to south africa are you, are you intending to stay in manchester when you move to a house or um are you going to move out um i'm intending to stay in manchester yes my partner's work is here so we want to try and set up a future here and yeah it's manchester for the foreseeable future which is very exciting there's a lot of musical stuff going on here it's a great place to be. Well, South Africa's loss and UK's gain to have you over. <laughs> Sally, thank you. thank you. Have a beautiful rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Thank Chat you. soon. Yeah. Thank you once again to Sally and thank you too for listening. May your week ahead be musically fulfilling and your low C beautifully in tune. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, all. Bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.